Welcome to Get Gig Ready. If you're a music maker emerging or early in your career, or even a veteran looking to brush up on the basics, we're here to get you close to some amazing local talent to help amp up your skills. Get Gig Ready is presented by City of Ride, Lane Cove Council, the Live Music Office, Music New South Wales, and 2SER, with support from Macquarie University. Today, I'm joined by Nicholas N, who is an ethnomusicologist, which I'm incredibly excited to talk about. First of all, Nick, what is ethnomusicology? Well, um, thanks for having me on the show, Felix. Um, ethnomusicology is the study of music, but um, with the ethno in the front, uh, we are looking at uh, non-Western cultures. Yeah, and so it's just a term that has come out, uh, has developed over time, and they thought that just to make it clear um, that we're not looking at Beethoven or you know Bach, not that sort of musicology. So it's ethnomusicology. So that's why there's the ethno at the front. Yeah, I think uh, I've really enjoyed over the past few years, especially over the internet, a stretch of musicians who are really pushing that field of music, you know, de-westernizing music. Oh, yes. Online, I think of people like Adam Neely and uh, Twelve Tone. Oh, yeah. Who are really doing great work in kind of in that field in a more public lens, kind of, I guess, not necessarily destigmatizing, but you re-familiarizing people. Uh, with other branches of music. And I think it's really exciting. So what particular branch of ethnomusicology are you most an expert in? Uh, well, um, I'm trying to be um, mainly uh, working in the area of Chinese music. Um, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I've been doing it for several years now. And I, <laughs> yeah. and I, um, I feel most comfortable in this area. But I have also studied music from Java, which is in Indonesia, the Javanese gamelan that was at uni. And um, I've looked into music from North and South India as well and a bit of Arabic music. So I I think I'm interested in everything. Um, But for most of my career, I've been performing and composing for uh, Western, uh, sorry, for Chinese instruments. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the sounds that people might recognize for them? Because there's always that very distinct, uh, I guess, Chinese East East Asian vibe that people, you know, riff on in movies all the time. Where does that sound come from? What instruments? Okay. Yeah, so there's the Erhu, uh, which is a two-strings violin equivalent, I guess you could say. And um, most people would have heard it in movies like you like you mentioned. Um, so in Kung Fu Panda, there's a very famous Erhu theme. And that's my main instrument, actually, is a two-stringed fiddle. And um, then there's also a bamboo flute, which often is heard in movies too. Um, and that one has a kind of a buzzy sound because of a thin bamboo membrane that was inserted in the Tang Dynasty. So it's got a bit of a shrill, quite recognizable sound. Um, and then there's um, a very popular plucked zither, which is like a harp, I guess, but it's um, horizontal. And that often, often when you, you know, the, the Qantas ads going to China and, and so it's that sort of oriental sound, most people, yeah, it's quite recognizable. So yeah, those are just some of the more common sounds that you can hear. All right, fantastic. Now that we are through the crash course on ethnomusicology, I am ready to nerd (laughs) the heck out. Because I think one of the most exciting things about ethnomusicology and bringing in other sounds from other cultures that have been around for as as long, if not longer, than some of the sounds we associate in the West is that there is such a wealth of influence that we have these shapes and ideas, as I mentioned, in films, but have yet to kind of saturate in the same way as in the West. So for a lot of people performing in these fields there's, you know, a a lot of pioneering work you're doing, bringing these sounds to people who might not have heard it before. I guess 
you know, how do you find an audience for something that people aren't familiar with? Because so often the music industry, uh, particularly on a big scale, plays into finding what people are familiar with. You know, how do you find that audience? Okay, so for me, um, uh, as a composer, I, I I suppose I go from gig to gig and uh, it's just a matter of what the project is. So coincidentally, <clears throat> things lead from one thing to another or um, I might see an interesting project that I, I apply for. Um, often they are Chinese cultural sort of related projects. So like history or, for instance, once I came up with an idea to um, set some um, visual art to music and it was a scroll depicting um, Chinese um, history in Australia, you know, from the early days to the present. And so I got an OSCO grant to set that to music by inviting 18 different composers to um, each write a, a, a bit of music to go with a scroll. And the scroll goes for about 50 metres, so it's a really big, long scroll. Uh, so so there's some things that I sort of think up by myself and then I get funding. Or say for right now there's this really interesting play at Belvoir Street Theatre called Miss Peony. And um, um, so I was just invited to write the music for that and it's a kind of a Chinese legacy type play as well. So often um, I work in this kind of a niche sort of area where there is a little bit of, a, you know, a cultural exploration type thing mm. happening. Um, yeah, and other times uh, I work in mainstream music too. So, and in the mainstream music um, situation, I find it interesting to bring unusual sounds into the composition. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just because um, there's so much to explore there. Um, I mean, you know, like the instruments of the Western Orchestra are so beautiful um, and and should still be used. But then um, there are all these amazing other sounds that you can put into the mix. And so that's what I try to do, just to. Um, I guess to expand on my 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 um, technique as well, yeah. you know, just to build up. Yeah, I think I think it's really exciting because you know uh, there are all of these cultural projects that you say are out there for people who are interested in these music in these musical instruments and musical styles to pursue. But also, we're kind of approaching a more mainstream acceptance of different, you know, ethnic music sounds. As you mentioned, uh, certain projects are starting to pick it up. I think one thing we've discussed uh, on another show that I work on a lot is uh, lo-fi music has really adopted a lot of both ethnic music sounds and microtonal sounds, which is kind of a, a mishmash of sounds from across all sorts of cultures. So do you feel as a musician that that acceptance is starting to grow in recent years and is that something that you know is that something you're looking forward to uh yeah i think it is actually i think um and looking digitally too because there are a lot more composers when i was different to when i was studying music and now these days you know um uh, all these young young guys coming up working on their music projects and there's access to all sorts of sounds from around the world in mm -hmm. logic or cubase all these amazing um pads that you can uh, or plugins, they're called plugins. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I think it feels like for, for these composers, um, the world's sort of out there, just at the at the fingertips. You know, you just you just have to click on a thing, and then you can get the sound. And I think that's pretty amazing because when I was learning, um, it was really how we had cassette tapes. You know, so um, so it was really different now. And I think with the new generation of composers coming up, uh, especially for gaming as well, mm. I find game uh, music for gaming really interesting because there are all these amazing sounds that, um, yeah, as you say, the sort of ethnic sort of instruments, but um, you wouldn't think so. And I, I love that because I think um, as music develops, um, why should it be um, 
put in a box, you know, yeah. like it shouldn't, like, you know, so my instrument, it shouldn't remind people of China. It should just be an instrument, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I think, I think there's two things that I'm really excited about in there. First of all, as you mentioned with composers coming up with new tools and new plugins that they can use, which if you're unfamiliar is basically just a, a software instrument or a software processing effect for those of you listening at home. Um, and I, I kind of think that because so many Western mu- musical instruments have been recorded and sampled to death in the ways that we can use them, there's now this arms race where people say, well, I already have, you know, 500 orchestras digitally ready to go. Let's find something new. So there's all of these crazy instruments I'd never heard of before that are now coming onto the market in this digital format, which is making it a lot more accessible to new people. But the other thing you mentioned in there with games music is that that same kind of arms race is happening on the flip side, where now that all of these tools are accessible all of these composers who wouldn't have had access before are just going nuts and it's so exciting it is very exciting i think so yeah and you can really see it in um because i teach at the uni so i'm at um i'm at two unis so i I teach part-time at um well i I help with the chinese orchestra at sydney con in the city and i'm full-time at western sydney uni um at the institute for Australian Chinese arts and culture. And so I sometimes help with the undergrads. And when I look at what they're doing and, you know, marking their assignments or whatever, I just see, wow, this is amazing. There's so much interest in, you know, um, music from around the world and um, so much openness, you know, just for exploration. And, you know, I can, I can just see all sorts of new genres developing and especially in in the West, out West, you know, (laughs) where it's very, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess touching on that university approach there, for you uh, working not only academically as a musician, but as a performing musician, do you feel that you need that formal context to be able to fully explore these instruments? Or, you know, should people not consider that a barrier if they're interested in picking it up? I mean, the answer is kind of obvious, but I'd like to hear someone on the on the inside of the issue say it. Yeah, I mean, there's no stopping you if you're interested in sound. Um, I think, you know, the world's your oyster. Um, as long as you can support yourself, um, if you if you're in that situation where you can freely go about and or do it as a hobby, you know, um, I think it's never too late. That's the beautiful thing about music. Um, I think all ages. It's not like dance where you, you know, often your career is over by fifty, um, perhaps you know. But with music, you can keep going, and there's so much to learn. And um, I'm, I'm thinking of branching out into studying myself even now, um, even though I've already got a full time job. Um, teaching it, um, I still, you know, every time I hear a new thing, I, I think, wow, um, I would like to spend some time learning this. Yeah, like the the more you learn, the more you realize there is to learn thing. Oh, absolutely. There's like, you know, there's no end to it, I think. And um, yeah, and I guess being in academia, um, I guess there's that sort of that nerdy sort of environment that you live in. And mm-hmm. so it does encourage um, you know, becoming a super nerd and, uh, <laughs> and really immersing yourself in a study. Yeah. Yeah. And but then of course, you know, sometimes I get like 50 essays to mark and then I think, Oh no, I can't, <laughs> there's no time, you know? So there are, there are pros and cons, you know? Yeah. yeah there are pros for, and sure. Cons. for sure. I guess yeah. the, the other thing kind of touching on going back and doing the study there is that so many cultures around the world, um, really draw on being, uh, with, with any skill, really putting yourself into it at its absolute fullest. And I think that for a lot of people with some of those traditions there, they can be a little scared to kind of pick up more traditional sounds because they think, well, you know, I'm not doing it properly if I'm not dedicating my entire life to it. Is is that something that people should be concerned about? You know, is there that pressure 
in, uh, I guess, circles of uh, musicians who play these kind of instruments to have a higher standard? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it depends on your intention and also, um, say, for instance, um, if you feel like, okay, I'm just going to become um, the world's best Shanghai player, you know, like an instrument for India. Um, and so that's a different thing where you probably want to study it with a guru and then get to know the musical system and really understand the theory um, and then um, play it really well. And there's been, there have been a lot of people in, in, in the past, especially since the 80s, who branched out into a culture that's not their own, you know, uh, as in their home culture. Like, say, there's a famous Australian shakati player um, called Riley Lee. And so he's gone through a whole, you know, uh, I guess, um, like the whole experience of being an outsider, it's the whole like outsider insider thing. Mm. And, you know, whether the Japanese accept him as a person who can play their traditional instrument and then becoming a master at it, you know, so that's one, one thing that you can do. Um, that, that does involve a lot of dedication and study. Um, on the other hand, if you are a composer who just wants to use that sound, um, the main thing is to use it appropriately because there's a whole set of cultural appropriation issue if you were to just take a sound without realizing say especially if it was linked to religion or cultural i mean that sort of sensitive um sort of a context you know so then you have to be just very careful yeah Yeah. i think i think the example i hear most often is that like a lot of middle eastern music is kind of the stereotypical oh he's the outside a bad guy sound in TVs yeah. and movies and like trying to yeah. edge away from those stereotypes we've inadvertently built up through our media history. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I guess it's expected, I think, um, that eventually an instrument will just be used without much thought. Because um, I can see already happening to the tabla because yeah. you hear the tabla everywhere now. Mm. And sometimes it's it's really out of context. But then you kind of think, well, if there are no cultural problems and there are no complaints from the people who, I guess, originally, you know, played the tabla, then maybe it's okay. So it's always, it's very, yeah, it's a gray area sometimes. I think as long as it's done with respect and, and artfully and tastefully, I think usually that's okay. Yeah. You know, usually it's usually fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always such a, such a difficult area, but that's kind of like the safest you can play it. And as long as you are, yeah kind of actively engaging with those ideas rather than just ignoring uh i think i think you'll be all right i think you'll be all right but maybe i'm not (laughs) maybe i'm not the person to pass judgment i guess uh the last thing i wanted to touch on is that you've sent through a track here evening tears here with kim cuny on the piano and i just wanted to ask like what is the story behind this song what should people uh, be listening for when they hear it so evening tears features the erhu which i talked about before which is a two-stringed fiddle from china and um that's played by myself and then kim a very good friend of mine kim kunio on piano um and um the it is a very interesting piece for us because um we just decided to record it one day while in the studio um we used to share an office at um, Queensland Con um, up in Brisbane and I guess just for something to do we got together and recorded a few tracks and this is what came out of that session Um, and I think this might have been about 10 years ago so it's just been sitting there Kim mastered it being an excellent composer and a sound um, engineer and so he sent me the file and it's just been sitting around for ages and I just thought I'd pull it out recently especially now that we're in um, lockdown um, looking at my old audio files and also while working on this play. So I used a bit of this music um, in this play that um, 
hopefully it will come out soon. It should already be in season. Um, and uh, it's called Evening Tears um, because it's reflective. Um, it, I guess there is a bit of a melancholy sort of uh, feel to it. Um, but it's, there's a bit of hope there as well. And I thought it might be appropriate because of the situation we're in now. Um, so looking forward to the future, yeah, that sort of thing. Well, fantastic, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us on Get Gig Ready. We will have links up to your stuff on the podcast. If people want to check out more of your work, enjoy Evening Tears, and we'll see you back here next time on Get Gig Ready. <laughs>